Today on Pens Exchange, Migration and Cultural Change in Scandinavia. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Anne Sophia Beck Knudsen. She's an assistant professor of economics at the University of Copenhagen. She received his bachelor's and PhD in economics from the University of Copenhagen. She was a postdoctoral fellow at Lund University and at Harvard University. Her research focuses on economic history, political economy, and economic development. Welcome, Anne. Thanks a lot. Human history can be described by reference to processes of migration. Most of our attention has focused on studying the impact of immigrants on their new communities. However, a secondary question of equal importance is what happens in the communities they emigrate from. And with that, we are led to ask what makes people move away from their places of origin. Economic concerns matter, of course, but cultural attitudes that select people to migrate matter too. Today we'll be joined by Anne Baxofi Knudsen, who will talk to us about Scandinavian migration to America in the 19th century. I want to start by asking Anne why pure economic-related concerns are not enough to explain the migration phenomenon. Right. Okay. So I I think that the, one can look at that question from from two angles. So for instance, if we only consider economic drivers in migration. Um, then we may fail to explain why some people, even if these people face no legal barriers, do not move to economic opportunity when they have the option of doing so. So uh, this is actually a phenomenon that we can see um, across countries and also within countries that even if there is an economic payoff for some people to move or migrate, they choose to stay. Um, and this tells me at least that there's something else going on than pure economic incentives and drivers of migration. Um, and then second, uh, another thing that I think is important is that if we look then at uh, also the consequences of migration uh, in the societies that are affected by migration, then um, if there are cultural uh, consequences, then these consequences may also impact uh, the economic structures and, and of, of these societies and also uh, uh, drivers of economic growth. Um, so if we only study or if we, in order, that is, in order to fully understand the economic effects of migration, we need to understand the cultural effects as well. When we look into history, do we see differences in terms of patterns that we experience today compared to the past? Or in other words, what is different from migration today from what happened 100 to 100 years ago? So, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, I think that there are lots of, of differences. One of the things that come to my mind is that um, in back then, uh, regulatory policies of migration were barely existent. So, so the, the period that I study is the age of mass migration, where millions of Europeans left uh, to settle uh, abroad, and most of them went to the United States. 
And these people could actually enter the US at this point in time freely and obtain permanent residency. And in some places, they would even give you land. Um, so there were, uh, I mean, it was, it was legally possible for a lot of people to, uh, to migrate at this point in time. Um, and then, I mean, the technologies were also different. So if you moved back then, you would have, it would be very difficult for you to keep in contact with relatives or friends uh, back home. Uh, so, so the cost of migration, sort of the emotional social cost would be perhaps higher back then than they, were, than they are today. So it was kind of the opposite of today. Today is kind of easy because transportation costs are easier. However, well, the legal costs are more difficult. So in, in, yeah, equi exactly. <laughs> in equilibrium, yeah. would you say kind of they, they stay the same or no? Uh, I, ooh, that's a difficult one. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think also these two, uh, um, they have uh, different effects uh, on the migration patterns. Um, so yes, it might be more difficult because of legal barriers, but uh, it's easier for uh, keeping in touch with the, the social networks that you're already part of. So these affect uh, different uh, drivers of migration, I think. Um, yeah. So as you said, you focus on your research on Scandinavia in the age of mass migration. Could you explain what's particular about Scandinavia at this point in time? Yeah, so I think I think I will actually be a little bit controversial here and say that there wasn't anything particular about Scandinavia yet at this point in time. So, of course, the Scandinavian countries, which are in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, and sometimes Iceland, um, they have uh, we have the, they had a common history back then as well, and also similar languages. But in terms of being different from the rest of Western Europe, I think that that would be a stretch uh, back then. Um, like the rest of the countries in mainland, at least Western Europe, they started to develop, industrialize, urbanize at this point in time. Um, and this was quite similar across uh, Western Europe. Um, and it's actually only after the year 1900, for instance, that the welfare states, which are a very strong characteristic of Scandinavia today that they started to develop. Okay, uh, could you talk to us a little bit more about what's special then about the age of mass migration? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I think it's, it, it, it must be one of the biggest migration episodes of, of human history. So it's a, a period between 1850 and 1920 where uh, between 40 and 50 million Europeans left Europe to settle in New World uh, countries. Uh, and most of them, or a large, large share of them, went to uh, the United States. Many also went to Canada and countries in South America, such as Argentina. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a period of mass migration, and um, especially Sweden and Norway experienced some of the highest immigration rates in this period, along with Ireland and Italy. Um, so, uh, a period of, I mean, huge demographic changes, um, uh, which I think is um, a very interesting period to study. In your work, you explain how individualist-leaning people were more likely to migrate than collectivist-leaning people. Could you elaborate on said argument, please? 
Yeah, so I can state this very plainly. So, so we tend to define collectivists as people who rely on this, their social networks or groups for a sense of identity and support. Um, and then, uh, I mean, uh, with them placing a higher value on these social networks, uh, they will be uh, less willing to leave those networks behind and thereby less likely to uh, migrate. Um, so that's sort of the hypothesis that I test in my, in my paper. And also I study the implications of this hypothesis. And I mean, there are nuances, of course. Uh, if, for instance, you have um, a lot of people from your social networks who are already migrating, then the cost may of migrating will not be as high. The emotional and cost and the cost in terms of loss of identity because you can join these people on the migration journey. So um, yeah, but the idea is that to collectivists there is a special cost of migration uh, because it's they they need to leave something behind. One very nice thing about your research is specifically the empirical strategy about how you measure how because I mean we can ambiguously talk about what collectivists and individuals mean, but when once we need to measure that, that is kind of difficult. Could you explain a bit about how you did that? Yeah, I mean, so unfortunately, I can't travel back in time and ask them about uh, uh, these people about their values and beliefs. So so what I do instead is that I, I, I have a lot of data from uh, historical population censuses. Uh, so these uh, data record the uh, personal details of everyone who lived in Scandinavia at the time. Uh, and here I have uh, names. So what I do is that I characterize uh, people as uh, collectivists if they give their children common first names, uh, and vice versa as individualists if they give their people uh, uncommon first names. Um, so if I, yeah, I can elaborate a bit more on that. I, uh, so uh, this proxy builds on or is inspired from a, a literature on names in in psychology and sociology, and this research has tied exactly this use of common or uncommon first names to core collectivist traits. So the idea here is that or what they have found, it's not just an idea, it's, it has empirical support that people who choose common first names, they do so uh, or they worry about uh, fitting in. So choosing a name that is common within a given community signals that this is where you belong. And on the other hand, choosing a name that is uncommon within a given community signals that you're independent from, from, from this community. And this is a key difference between collectivism and individualism. I guess it doesn't matter for your research, but could you explain a little bit about how the naming conventions work in Scandinavia? I mean, do you use patronymics and so on? Yeah, so I, 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 I look at first names only. So I don't, I mean, I use, so they, so the, the last names were uh, changing at this point in time, going from patronymic uh, last names to sort of more of a, a family name that would continue over generations. Um, I control for this in my analysis. Uh, so this is, has no bearing on my results. Um, Another thing that is quite important to understand in the context of Scandinavia is that there was a tradition of, of naming your kid after or your child after uh, older uh, family members. So names would sort of go, uh, be, uh, uh, be passed along uh, 
over the generations of the same family. But what we know is that when people were not uh, happy about uh, this tradition, they were they would be quite creative actually in sort of uh, trying to avoid these uh, these uh, traditions. So they would alter, for instance, uh, the spelling of a name, or they would take a middle name of the grandparent that you were supposed to name your child after instead of the actual first name. Um, so, so in that way, uh, names over time became uh, more uncommon uh, because people were, uh, uh, were quite uh, interested in, in, in choosing um, different names. Um, and of course, so, so this can explain, like it gives you a sense of, of how these naming had all the, the naming customs worked at the time. Um, and, and it's also something I observe in the data and control for. In terms of similarities between names, do you see that, for example, today there are more heterogeneous names, like there are differences between Scandinavian people names, or they have kind of clustered around certain names? Oh, definitely. They're much more different today than back then. So back then, uh, names were super concentrated uh, on a very few names. So you would have uh, 10% of all children would be given the same name uh, in, in, in certain generations. Um, yeah, so naming patterns were much more conformist back then. And, and I can see in my data over time how they become more and more differentiated. And uh, this has, by some sociologists, also been interpreted as uh, reflecting this rise uh, to individualism that um, has been quite general in, in Europe over, this, uh, over the past uh, century. So even with migration, generally speaking, Scandinavian Europe became more individualist. Even with migration, yes, exactly. So the point here is, this is sort of the broader context. Uh, the point here is that uh, my research shows, or I show that um, the places that had a lot of selective immigration became more collectivist, but overall there was a, a, a trend of higher, of, of growing individualism. So if you take, so my results sort of suggest that in levels of individualism would have been even higher if the age of mass migration had not taken place. Um, right. So for instance, perhaps at the level of the US today, which is the most individualistic country in the world. So, but that is kind of a long-term implication. Do you see any short-term implication in the communities that you study? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, so yeah, so, so my results, I show uh, that we have this selection in migration that it was indeed the individualistic people who tended to immigrate and the collectivists who tended to stay. And then the sort of the first effect of this is a purely mechanical effect when the individualistic people leave, uh, the, the, the culture at origin becomes more collectivist, just simple like by construction. Um, and then what I show in my research is that this in increase in collectivism in the very short run persists over time. So it persists across generations. And I can show that um, within Scandinavia from, from one generation to the next, but I can also show it in the long run. So uh, if I look at, for instance, or use these uh, standard surveys where we can elicit uh, people's uh, values and beliefs, I see that in, in Scandinavian districts uh, that saw a lot of immigration of selected individuals, so a lot of individualistic immigration, that they are relatively more collectivist today. 
So, so definitely there were short, <laughs> short run effects uh, that persisted over the long run. And your unit of measurement districts, how it does that? It's kind of the same today as it was in the past or what, what is specifically that? What's a district? Yeah, so yeah, good question. So this, um, so the districts are, uh, the, I, I have 64 districts uh, across Scandinavia. So these are sort of the, it's the first level administrative unit um, uh, in Scandinavia. Um, they have changed uh, very little in Norway and Sweden. In Denmark, they have grown bigger over time. Uh, I can do the analysis on the historical districts or present-day districts, it, it, it doesn't really matter. There weren't, so I mean, the districts, to me, in my research, uh, that the districts uh, form the boundaries of your social networks. So I sort of assume, assume that this is the community that you want to fit in or stand out from. Um, there were no, I mean, there were, no, there were not a lot of political uh, cleavages or differences between these districts. Um, yeah. yeah, that was a bit long. That's okay. but yeah. uh, we previously talked about how, well, you previously talked about how Scandinavia was perhaps not as special or particular compared to the rest of Europe. But within Scandinavia, do you see differences between the experience in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden? Hmm, yeah, so my paper focuses on the common experiences across these countries. I, I, I do see that uh, Norway was generally more hit by immigration, so the immigration rates were higher, but the, uh, the cultural change that took place over the age of mass migration was also stronger. Um, uh, and uh, on the other side, you have Denmark, which experienced a weaker uh, cultural change um, compared to the other countries. So one explanation for this um, that I have heard from historians is that um, in Denmark, we already, so I'm from Denmark, that's why I say we, in Denmark, there had already been uh, a lot of uh, rural to urban migration before the, the start of the age of mass migration. So uh, the Danes had perhaps not the same urge to go settle somewhere new because they had already done so perhaps in, in your parents' generation um, by moving to the city um, instead of moving abroad. So maybe this is not in your research, but as a Scandinavian yourself, do you see kind of that difference translated to today? Like, do you see that Norwegians are more individualistic than uh, Danish people? Um, I mean, they are. They, I, I think there is this view of, of Norwegians as being more able to depend on themselves. Uh, they are sort of more fierce. I would be. I would trust a Norwegian to. Um, um, to sort of survive if you put him somewhere uh, in the countryside with not a lot of uh, food or other people around. Uh, so, I mean, I think that there is um, a, a stronger sense of, of self-reliance in, in Norway uh, than, for instance, in, in Denmark. Yeah, but this is uh, purely, I mean, my uh, gut feeling. <laughs> By any chance, do you happen to have any information about Iceland? I ask because I think it would be interesting just to know if there is something special about it, considering its past, its history, being created as a political entity precisely by people looking for more freedom, but not in this period that you are studying, but a thousand years earlier. Hmm. Yeah, okay. That's a, that's, that's a very interesting question. So, I mean, 
Um, yeah, what to say? Uh, so I have not studied Iceland. Uh, we do have data on Iceland. As far as I remember, it was uh, no, especially Norwegians who were fleeing from the harsh rule of some uh, particular Viking king uh, at, uh, like a thousand years ago. Uh, and uh, they did establish one of the first democracies and also earlier than in Norway. So, I mean, perhaps that could sort of be some anecdotal evidence that they would create or move to create a more free society. But I mean, I think I have, this is an excuse for me to study uh, this. I think it's super interesting. I've always thought about like how cool it would be to have a project on Vikings. So I guess this is That's a, a, perfect excuse. a nice yeah. excuse. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it would be awesome to read something like that, yes. Yeah, so thanks for that. So uh, what about migration within Scandinavian countries? Was it common for Nigerians to move to, to Denmark and so on? Uh, oh, yeah, like that. Um, yeah, they some did. Uh, some did. Uh, it's not. Uh, it did not uh, dominate the, the the sort of international migration flows at the time. Uh, but definitely some also uh, people from southern Sweden moved to to Copenhagen. Uh, but it's it's actually not something that I have a lot of data on. Uh, but so I know very little about this. Uh, it's not the media part of the immigration at this point in time. But yeah. So it did in terms happen. of like controlling for biases, there that's not important historically speaking. No, no. I mean, in in my so this is a bit technical, but in my analysis, it was this would just I mean create noise uh, in the sense that it would uh, it would prevent me from finding effects so of of immigration in in the in the districts of origin if people were sh uh, migrating and moving across with. Uh, across uh, the Scandinavian countries and also within uh, at a very high rate, then uh, this would speak against me finding any effects of, of immigration. A related question, but not about countries, but about differences in urbanization patterns is about the rural to urban immigration. So do you see differences there? Like really in the, in the short and the long run, uh, rural migration tended to make, uh, make cities more individualistic compared to rural districts? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is definitely something I see. I, I've already looked into this because I'm I'm doing this for another project that is uh, sort of in the early phases. Um, so internal migration was selected. So it's it's exactly as you say. Uh, people with individualistic traits they tended to move to the cities, and the collectivists tended to stay behind. Um, and I think that this is uh, I mean, the selection was not as strong as uh, with international migration. Uh, but it's, it's definitely, it was quite significant. Uh, and what I am exploring right now with uh, co-authors is uh, the implications of this, uh, these selection patterns. So does this mean that, that uh, cities develop differently from rural areas because of these differences in, in culture? Um, or, uh, or is it insignificant? Uh, for the long-run development of, of the countryside and uh, versus uh, urban areas. Well, thank you very much. And to end, I would like to ask you about the broader implications of not just about migration in, in Scandinavia, but generally speaking, what, what, what are the implications of that? Because cultural transmission, of course, is a complex phenomenon and migration is but one variable that impacts on it. 
But how likely would you say, for example, that migration can contribute to a world with corner solutions where, for example, geographical areas are polarized by cultural traits precisely because of selection effects? I think that this is extremely likely and I think that it has already uh, happened. So, uh, for instance, if you look at um, if you look at or just contrast Europe with the United States, you see that uh, levels of individualism are much higher in the US than in Europe. Um, and uh, this may be partly explained by by my results on, on European uh, settlers being selected on individualistic traits uh, 150 years ago. Um, but also, as we just talked about, uh, I think it also has the the power to uh, explain or the power to shape uh, the cultural landscape within a country so that you would see differences between, uh, um, as we talked about, rural and urban areas. Um, yeah, so I think that, um, yes, I think that it's it has, uh, it's, like this also depends on on this hypothesis of this selective selection and migration being uh, still taking place, uh, which I think it uh, it, it does. Uh, I have some data on contemporary surveys uh, from con contemporary surveys that show that even today people are still selected on individualistic versus collectivist traits because it is sort of it's it's associated with something so fundamental about migration, which is that you leave people and neighbor uh, communities behind uh, th that you're familiar with. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's still going on uh, around the world and it has uh, the power to create cultural differences between places. Well, thank you very much, Anne. Oh. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yes, thanks a lot. Migrate is more than to just move away from your homeland. It implies leaving your family, friends, and with them, your social capital. It is to be expected that only certain people with specific traits may want to venture into such endeavor. Their departure, however, impacts the whole community they are leaving behind. Understanding the causes and consequences of migration allows us to understand better the gradual change of human societies across time. This has been Pens Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.